Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. What is love? Anyone? Baby, don't hurt me. Anyone? No? Okay. Baby, don't hurt me. Okay, well, we're talking about love today. So I wore pink, as Adam did. Happy Valentine's Day. Some of you are excited. Some of you are like, I hate this day every year. Uh, but we figured we were just shamelessly like, you know what? We're just going to make this a way, an excuse to talk about love and attraction and dating. And then I saw this title of this series that was called Baywatch, and I just felt like we had to do it. And uh, I'm really excited about this. One of the things that, uh, when I was a youth pastor before I moved here, and we planned planning this church, um, one of the most inept areas of almost every single middle school, high school, I would even say a lot of college kids, was the area around dating, sex, intimacy, marriage, you name it, in the Christian world. Because, uh, to be honest, we grew up in a culture and a generation that just didn't talk about those things. And uh, so we're doing a three-week series on it. If I could have it my way, it would be like a 20-week series. But some of you would probably start just being miserable. Uh, so we're only going to tackle three weeks. And uh, it's going to be a little bit different than probably what you would expect. Um, we'll be camping out in some different areas of the Bible. But uh, we're going to be talking about intimacy and attraction today. Uh, next week, we'll actually be talking about singleness, which I don't know about you, but I don't know if you've ever heard of a dating series that had a week just on singleness. But uh, this is the one for you then, maybe. Uh, and then the third week, we're going to talk about marriage. And um, along the way, not today specifically, we're not doing a post-service training because it's Valentine's Day. So uh, you can either maybe have a date or you want to go home and eat ice cream, whatever. But um, we, in two weeks, we'll have Q&A and kind of some opportunity to ask some questions that maybe I'm not always able to hit in a teaching or that you're curious about. And we can, we can tackle those. So we're going to be doing that over the next three weeks. Um, but one of the things that I love to start with, and I, I don't know if you've maybe ever thought of this, is... When we think about love, we think about marriage, we think about attraction, dating, intimacy, we think about all of these things, do you ever wonder the question, why? Like, why was all of these things created? Like, if we were on earth right now, God could have created it in such a way where we didn't really feel love. In fact, we didn't even really have partners. We just were kind of all independent in fact, he could have created us in ways that we could have reproduced ourselves. He could have, he could have even created, um, like, you know, different types of countries and worlds in ways that, like, you know how they talk about the stork coming down and bringing a baby? Could have done that. But he didn't. And I think we, sometimes we take that for granted. We don't realize that, that the creator created in such a way that he does not create uh, disunity, he does not create chaos, but it's, har- it's harmonizing with everything that he's doing. So we're going to start off in just the beginning of the Bible. So if you have one... Genesis 1, first page in the Bible. It's an easy one to find. Uh, If you're using your phone, you can jump there. We're going to be in Genesis, and then we're also going to be in another fun book called Song of Songs, or in some Bibles, Song of Solomon, which if you've ever read that book, you're probably wondering how Trey is going to talk about and teach that book, because it is pretty interesting. Uh, But Genesis 1, if we're going to start at love, sex, marriage, and all this, we have to ask, like, why was all this created in the first place? A lot of times we just kind of assume, yeah, people get married, people are sexually attracted to each other, people have kids, and that's just like what we do, and animals do that, and we don't even think about why God did that and why he created it. So in chapter 1, verse 27, this is kind of the, the uh, reminder of, of our creation as humans. 
It says God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we know that as humans, we are image bearers, which is a, a kind of a, a, a huge unpacking of the word image bearer and what that means. But in a simplistic way, it means that there are, there are characteristic components of us that honor and, and show and reveal God and who he is. And the unique thing about this is he says he created male and female. He created them. And so not only did he create them, though, if you go down a few more verses, down to verse 31, I'm just kind of skipping through here. He says at the end of all of this, he says, God saw all that he had made, which is not just humans, creation, land and sea, animals, birds, all these type of things, right? And he even gave the humans a commission of what to do, be fruitful and multiply. And he saw all that he had made, and he says it was very good. Now, I don't know if you've heard people talk about, like, what does it mean for God saying it's very good? But, like, what that means is his original intent, his creation, was flourishing in such a way and harmonizing in such a way that it was, it was um, comparative to God in his presence in the Trinity. Now, you're probably like, oh, boy, we're talking about Trinity. What is that, and how does that relate? But it's actually really important. See, when we look at in Genesis 1, there's verbiage that basically communicates that God is present in the Trinity. He says, let us make human in our image. And you're like, well, wait a second. God is plural then. And that's where we talk about the Trinity. And we have basically God the Father, of God the Son, Jesus, and we have the Holy Spirit. And the three of them are in this really um, beautiful uh, Henry now, he calls it a dance. They're, they're, as, they're holding hands and they have different um, kind of personhood attributes is probably the best way to describe it, but it sounds confusing. But they work together and they flourish together in harmony. That the essence of community, of, of being in relationship with people, is an image-bearing, honoring opportunity of the Trinity. It, it echoes the community that God experiences in the Trinity. And I know that's like, you're like, that's really confusing. But it's really, really important because when he creates us and he says we're his image bearers, we love in such a way that is, is similar and representative of God's love in the Trinity. So that's Genesis 1. That kind of gives us like the baseline, I would say. But my favorite verse in Genesis, uh, in, the, in the creation story, if you go to Genesis 2, so skip a little bit farther, in verse 25... This is probably one of the most, I highly doubt you would pin this as like your favorite verse in the creation story, but in Genesis 2, verse 25, it says, the man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> amen. We read this, and a lot of you probably heard this in a wedding maybe, or, you know, maybe like counseling, or, you know, maybe someone did a dating teaching on it, and they're like, naked and unashamed. Um, and it kind of reminds me of the opposite of the TV show Naked and Afraid, if you've ever seen that. That show is crazy. Um, but he says, they're both naked and they were not ashamed. I want you to know that the, the climax of the entire creation story is that verse. A lot of people don't realize that. God did say everything that he created was good earlier, but everything that was created was a response and an ability to re represent the Trinity and the love of God and the Trinity on earth. And nakedness was this sign of, of vulnerability, of intimacy, of love in such a beautiful way that was not adulterated by anything, that had no sin in it, had no brokenness. And so Adam and Eve could look upon each other in nakedness and feel no guilt, no shame, no sin. And that's the beauty. And we miss this. We like forget that, because we 
have un- unfortunately experienced the fall, the sin, the brokenness, the, the, the bad nature in ourselves on earth, that when we even read this verse, we have a hard time remembering that this is fully beautiful with no sin. Like, we're even like, oh, that must have been weird, you know? That must have been weird. Because we, we can't even grapple because we know that we, we deal with nakedness in today's world and, like, we, we have a hard time with it. Even in other cultures, you know, they handle it differently. It's very subjective. And, and, but here we see in the garden that the climax of the story is showing that what God had created was in such harmony that the ultimate root of all of it was, was this beautiful intimacy that echoed his, the Trinity, God himself. And so when we look at that, I think it creates a bit of a different foundation for us as Christians when we talk about dating, attraction, intimacy, marriage, and all these pieces. In fact, what's interesting about the word nakedness in the, in the Old Testament is this is the only time it's ever referred to as positive. After that, it's, it's actually kind of a sense of shame. In fact, um, if you were to look on someone's nakedness, I mean, you could potentially be put to death. It was an extremely serious consequence. And so nakedness, in this instance, is really the only positive we see in it. And then what happens is sin enters the world. It ruins what God intended to be the most beautiful aspect of creation, and it's ruined. But when I talk about nakedness, I think the better understanding for us to kind of grapple with this idea is, is really just the word intimacy. For us, typically, like, as guys, we, we talk about, like, you ask, like, like, have you been intimate? Like, we're talking about sex. But intimacy itself really just means, like, a closeness. It's, um, the, the, I think the Webster Dictionary defined it as a close, familiar, and loving personal relationship with either another person or a group. You experience intimacy. And so before we even talk about attraction, dating, marriage, all, all of the relationships that we encounter romantically, we, we have to understand, okay, what is intimacy? Because here in the garden, the priority was intimacy. Not only with, with Adam and Eve, but with all of creation that they were supposed to steward, to have dominion over, to, to create a continual harmony of God's creation. And so this is, this is, intimacy is God's ideal, but then the opposite of intimacy, which is what we talk about sin, in this instance was a lack of trust. It was insecurity. It was a doubt. When Adam and Eve sin, the devil, the serpent, if you will, asked them the question, like, did God really say that? He's basically saying he's fearful that you'll become like him. And so their, their eating of the fruit was them basically saying, we don't necessarily trust in God's plan. We kind of want to know more. We want to have more ownership of this. And we want to st- overstep the bounds of God. We want to be God, like God. And that's the opposite of intimacy is, is a lack of trust. It's fear. It's doubt. In, verse, uh, in chapter 3, verse 23, what happens whenever we sin, whenever we disobey God, Verse 23 is kind of the symbolic, I would say, overarching theme of it. The Lord God expelled him, Adam, from the orchard in Eden to cultivate the ground from which he had been taken. Remember, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He was like, there was this intimacy that, that is now not the same, that we have dealing with a broken world, and, and the result of that sin was casting them out, basically, in, in separation. Uh, and so now I think intimacy today is fighting to restore and echoing the same love that God originally created in the garden with, with people, other image bearers of, of, um, of humans in the world today. Now that is romantic, maybe, with a companion or, or a partner, um, but it also is with friendships. It's also with family. And so when we talk about a good dating series, a good love series, if you're not talking about it in such a way that it that permeates into everything in all your relationships, I think you're doing it wrong. Because... Marriage itself is a great thing, but it's a symbol of love and affection that we should all be sharing to all people 
um, regardless of our, the specific relational title we have. And so in this instance, intimacy is, is really just, yeah, we can talk about a romantic intimacy, but uh, in fact, there's, there's actually two um, psychologists who they defined five different types of intimacy. They have emotional intimacy, which involves experiencing closeness of feelings, social intimacy, experience of having common friends, similarities in social networks, and so on, intellectual uh, intimacy, uh, ex ex experience of sharing, sharing ideas, sexual intimacy, which is what we typically um, think is intimacy only, involving this experience of sharing general affection and or sexual activity, and then the fifth one is recreational intimacy, involves the sharing of interests and hobbies, mutual particip participation in a sporting event, and so forth. And then I added the last one, I think, spiritual intimacy. So there's there's six types of intimacy here that, that when we talk about it, it's growing closer to with people and with others. And so when we kind of set this now, like this is, this is our foundation, if, if you will, of our idea of the smart people in the church world call it a sexual ethic. <laughs> uh, if, you're, if you're trying to build the, the foundation of your sexual ethic, of, of like a, a godly understanding of dating, marriage, relationships, intimacy, the, the foundation is intimacy. And um, there's kind of three things then. I'm just summing this up so we have it. Intimacy was, as we can see, was and is God's desire and his interaction of uh, flourishing with humans. Like, intimacy was God's plan. It was not haphazard. It was not unplanned. It didn't just happen. It was, it was planned in such a way that it would show um, the beauty of the Trinity. Second, intimacy is not just sex. So I know like, in our verbiage we use the word intimate kind of in that way, but there's more to it than that. Uh, we should be able to, to understand the depths of intimacy. And then the last thing, which we'll talk about later, is the idea of if we follow Jesus, and we must embark in the same intimacy pursuit that he was embarking on while he was on earth, meaning that the relationships that he chose to pursue, the intimacy that he gave off to people and he pursued is the same level of intimacy that we must all pursue, regardless of it being a romantic relationship or not. And that's exactly why a long, long time ago, back whenever there was no dating wasn't around, it wasn't a thing, whenever two people would, would like, you know, they want to get married, they would actually like go and hang out with each other's families, and that was like the way to figure it out, if they were worth marrying or not, because what happened was they would see how they would act with their mom or their dad or their family. Same reason why when people go on group dates, it's actually really helpful because you see how they treat their friends, you see how their friends treat them, you see the, the things that they prioritize, because when you're one-on-one, -on -one, it's really great, and it's awesome, but it's a lot easier to kind of act a certain way. But when your friends are messing with you, making fun of you, or even if you go bowling, you will find out someone going bowling. <laughs> but you go over to the family dinner, right, and they're all messing around, and you can see how they interact, or you get to see their, the, the parents' marriage and how they interact. All of those things affect intimacy. And so for us, we, we can't just stop at intimacy in a romantic way. We have to be able to think about it in the way Jesus did, in a multifaceted lens. So intimacy, that's the foundation. Then attraction, which is a whole other aspect. This one's actually much harder to pin down. Um, but when I specifically am talking about it, what I'm, what I'm referring to is what's defined as the natural feeling of being drawn to other individuals and desiring their company. So attraction is basically desiring company. Um, and be interested in them. Now, this is, in, for the sake of this, is more romantic than we typically think. But what's most unique about attraction, and this would be in the opinion of myself and many psychologists, is that it's typically reform, or, uh, sorry, defined and reformed by what psychologists uh, call uh, nature and nurture. 
So I don't know if you've ever heard that, nature and nurture. There's kind of two aspects that affect our attraction for others, whether it is romantic or just even in general. Nature, the example of nature is basically, this is your natural pre-wiring, and some would even argue it's genetic. It's like built into you when you're born. It's uncontrolled circumstances of your humanity and biological factors. Nurture refers to the influence of your external factors, your environment, and circumstances. So this could be something in large scale as the culture you grew up in, the loss of a parent or a trauma you've experienced has affected your ability to be attracted to a certain person or thing or whatever. So I know this is, sounds very clinical, but it's important. We'll get to the good stuff, don't worry. So uh, nature and nurture, I I'm not gonna spend this incredible amount of time on that, but just to give you kind of two examples. An example of nature would be, maybe you have a friend like that, you, that you've experienced this conversation with or a family member, but it's maybe uh, a young man who has told you that ever since birth, he was always just attracted to other men. That he can't remember a time he was attracted to a girl. And he would say that phrase, I just feel like ever since I can remember, ever since I was a little kid, I was just attracted to men. And I don't have anything that happened that like, I feel like was this huge trajectory that changed that or it was that way. That would be an example of nature. It was something that maybe genetically or maybe they just were born with that is that's their wiring. And then nurture would be another example that uh, maybe you have, for instance, uh, a young girl who's raised in an incredibly independent, emotionless family. And so when she leaves the house and looks for uh, a man, she pursues mainly men that are incredibly emotionally sensitive and compassionate um, because she had not experienced that in her family. It's also possible that she could react the same way and want the same thing. So those are, those are experiences of nature is something really just kind of um, potentially genetic. They're still fit, trying to figure that out. But, uh, and then nurture is your, your circumstances. So at the center of this, though, and this is like a pretty, I would argue, it's a pretty, like, pretty common view, um, whether you're a Christian or not. Most people would say there's influence in both of those. Um, and when we're talking about attraction, especially romantic attraction. Uh, but I want to actually, it, it's, I want to I fit this conversation and idea into a biblical narrative because otherwise we're just going to play with the clinical terms. They're not going to really be truth to us. So now I would love for you to turn to Song of Solomon or Song of Psalms, depending on what's in your Bible, uh, I don't know if, there might be some dust that's uncovered opening up this book. I don't know if you're just reading this for fun. Um, but it seems fitting, right? Valentine's Day, reading Song of Solomon. This book is incredibly hard, honestly, to understand. In fact, the symbolism is remarkably outdated in terms of like a cultural understanding of beauty. Uh, somebody drew the picture of, basically, Solomon is describing like a, like a woman in her beauty. And someone drew the photo of the, of the, the woman and it was like, it didn't, it didn't make any sense. It was terrifying. He would be like, your breasts are like two fawns. And you're like, never said that to a woman. Like, your hair is like, you know, it's just like so weird. Your hair is like the vines of, like, we would never say that. And so they drew the picture of the lady, and it was like terrifying. So we read this book, and sometimes we're like, yeah, I'll just, I'll flip through it. Like, that's whatever. But there's so much, there's so much rich beauty in here. It's just very symbolic. Um, so verse, verse one, we have Solomon's most excellent love song. It's kind of argued that he wrote this about this ideal woman, um, and we know Solomon's one of the wisest dudes ever, so it's kind of important. Uh, verse 2, though, we're just going to jump in. No, no shame here. Oh, how I wish you would kiss me passionately, for your lovemaking is more delightful than wine. Starting strong, right? Just jumping right in. This is the most important thing about, like, when we read Song of Solomon and we jump in, is God is sanctioning attraction. That there is not a bad thing about being attracted to other people. Like, we, sometimes we feel, like, almost dirty sometimes being attracted to someone. Now, the instance of this, we even see, like, Adam wrote a love song to Eve, basically, whenever he saw her, and he was like, whoa, this woman is something. 
he was attracted to her. Even Jacob uh, did some pretty crazy stuff for Rachel in Genesis, or later in Genesis. Um, we even see like other instances, like this one actually is pretty provocative, but in, in Proverbs 5.19, a father advises his young son about his wife. Can you imagine a father telling you like in the car, hey son, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Could you imagine? I would like open the door and jump out. <laughs> but this is in the Bible. Like it is. It's not something we like neglect or shy from. It's, it has power and it has weight. And so we have to forget that even though attraction is sanctioned, that uh, it is perverted by sin in some ways. And so the beautiful thing that God creates, we ruin and tarnish, and we forget the ideal. And so the ideal here is super important. So an instance of, and so you're maybe wondering, like, okay, well, like, if I'm attracted, at what point is it sin, or at what point is it wrong? So you, know, you could have a boy, for instance, who, you get a 16-year-old boy who is nurtured, remember the, the term nurtured, by pornography in such a way that he is attracted to women with big breasts like in all the porn, porn films that he watched. Now, his ability to be attracted to a woman, God sanctions, but his ability to be attracted to a woman who has big breasts, well, in, in Proverbs it says that we should enjoy breasts as men, is what it says. But in his instance, it was nurtured in a sinful way. And so he's pursuing something that is good, is God created, but in a, a wrong heart, a wrong pursuit. It's the same idea of, of when Jesus comes and he, he flips all of the laws that they had learned upside down and, and, and gives them a deeper and greater command. He says, look, if you've wanted a woman in your mind, you've lusted after her and you've committed adultery. It's not like you just got to go take that woman and commit adultery physically. If it's in your mind, it is adultery. And so in this same way, like attraction itself is God-given, it's sanctioned, but we have to realize that there is this just messy, just delusion um, of sin that just affects the way that we are attracted. So for instance, one thing that was, was mind-blowing to me and one of the most, like, things that I, I still like to think about all the time, I can't remember who told me it, but someone said, you know, Trey, it's possible to be married and have a great healthy sex life and love your wife and think she's beautiful and still lust after her. And I was like, what? It's like, I don't think so. Once we're married, like, I can stare at her about all I want or I can whatever, you know, like we're married. But the idea of, of lusting and wanting after something is wanting after something with the wrong intentions. And so that, that creates a greater weight. And when we're attracted to something, this is where the line becomes sin, is we're attracted to something in the wrong way or for the wrong reasons. And I think like that is something that I feel like maybe you have not been spoken over, but as a youth pastor, I was constantly telling like, teenage boys especially, like, I'm pumped that you're attracted to other people. I'm pumped that you're attracted to this girl that you like. Right? That is like God-given, and you, you're not, you should not ignore that. However, what you do with that and the reasons why you continually become attracted is the thing that we have to be aware of in the sinful world that we live in. So I don't want you to think like, oh boy, like attraction is this really dicey thing because we, I actually think I'm like, I am a huge fan of, of talking about sex in such a way that we ruin the stigma of the taboo of it in, in that like it is a beautiful, great thing. Intimacy is a great thing and we should not act like it's something to not be talked about or to hide in the closet or it's bad, 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 bad. Then you get married, and then all of a sudden you've got to flip a switch, and you just have to, like, love it. Imagine being taught something your whole life is bad and evil and whatever, and then you, you get to have it, and then you just expect to flip a switch that has been programmed and nurtured into your brain your entire life. So attraction is important. We have to get it right, because that's, like, the root of what become dating or singleness in marriage. It is the root of all of that. So here's a few key aspects of attraction that we need to be aware of. So the first one, attract physical attraction is important, but it's only outwardly important. 
So it is important. I will give you that. Some people argue, like, well, what if, like, is physical attraction important at all, or is it just completely secular and sinful? And it's not. It's Song of Solomon, they are very physically attracted to one another. There's like two chapters of just describing their bodies. It's very, very intense. We're not talking about that today, so you're welcome. Um, Proverbs 6 says, Don't, Do not lust in your heart for her beauty, and do not let her captivate you with her alluring eyes. Meaning, basically, like, don't let only her external experiences captivate you, but also her heart of beauty. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful, and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. The internal characteristics and aspects of our heart. So physical attraction can become an idol when it robs us of the depth, beauty, and creativity that God designed and gave for each of us. It's the same reason why in the Trinity, we talk about God, the Son specifically, that a lot of times people just want Jesus for his stuff and they don't want him. They want him for what he can do, but they don't want to be with him. That's the same idea. You can, you can like someone physically and be like, yeah, they're pretty, they're cool. When I'm around them, they make me better, whatever. But if you're not actually pursuing them in an intimate level, it's just the same as your intimacy with Jesus. If you're just pursuing Jesus for his stuff, it's not, it's not right. It's not going to get you to the intimacy that God is desiring because his trinity is, is not like that. The trinity. So number two, this is probably the most like, difficult one, is physical attraction is oftentimes subjective and arbitrary. And what I mean by that is, listen to this, this was a study done over what would be 3,000 3, years of the, the, the significance of women in beauty. So in ancient Egypt in 1100 BC, the be- a beautiful woman was slender, narrow, shoulders were high-waisted, uh, high symmetrical face. Those were the things that were captivated. And then 700 years later in 400 BC, ancient Greece, women, if they were plump, full-bodied, and light-skinned were considered beautiful and physically attractive. And then in the Han Dynasty, 200 years later, for 400 years, it was slim waist, pale skin, large eyes, small feet. And then in 1400 AD, it's crazy, I know. This, is, this one's funny. Ample bosom, rounded stomach, full hips, fair skin. That was the Italian Renaissance until 1700 AD. Then Victorian England, and we've probably seen some shows on that. Desirably plump, which is, okay, this is funny. You watch a Victorian England show, they're all skinny and beautiful. But in reality, the beauty of Victorian England was desirably plumped, full-figured, and then cinched waist. So the TV shows you're watching, they're not accurate. <laughs> 1920, Roaring Twenties, flat chest, downplayed waist, short bob, hairstyle, and boyish figure. Supermodel era, 1980s, athletic, slender, but curvy, tall, toned arms. Now postmodern beauty, which is 2000 till now, which is actually probably changing a little bit, but flat stomach, healthy skinny, large breasts and butt, thigh gap, and tan. <laughs> We're laughing at that. Yeah. So I was going to do the guys as well, but believe it or not, the guys is actually much more difficult to pin down. Just because even, even in, in general, guys, like physical beauty is not as defining of an attribute of women in, in, for tons of years. So, but this idea of women's beauty, it's all subjective, right? Even culturally now, we go to another country, there's something they might see as beauty that we don't even really see. So we have to realize that attraction is good. It's God-sanctioned. But we're even dealing with the cultural tension of it. Like, why am I attracted to someone? Am I attracted to this person in America because everyone in social media is trying to be like that person? That person looks like them. There's a strong reality of that. The, the girl you might be attracted to or the guy you might be attracted to, you're attracted to because of the immense cultural pressures. So we have to have discernment and wisdom for that as well. And that doesn't mean, like, you don't try to, like, you know, there's a sense of we see beauty as a certain way, so like we might pursue that, but there's a level of where it becomes vanity and unhealthy. 
Verse 3 in Song of Solomon. The fragrance of your colognes is delightful. Your name is like the finest perfume. No wonder the young women adore you. Now, this is another like praise from the lover, his lover's uh, lips here. And it's, if you look, it's interesting. They're going from uh, basically a, it's definitely a physical attraction. What's unique is she talked about his scent and name being carried to others. This is basically, and, and um, when, I, when I say it, you'll kind of understand, like it's basically a way of saying your reputation, your scent, your reputation precedes you. Like you are well known as a man worth loving or liking. Um, it's the same example of like if you're a girl and you had a friend who wants to date your ex-boyfriend and you're like, he has a bad reputation. His scent is trash. That's what you would say. <laughs> and so she's saying the opposite. She's saying his scent is phenomenal. Every woman loves it. Like, he has integrity. He's not a flirt to every girl, but, like, girls value and understand his internal characteristics and the things of value. So if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you have a girlfriend right now that's trying to um, date your ex-boyfriend or whatever, you could try. Yeah. Song of Solomon, chapter, verse 3, says he has to have a good scent, and he does not. So you can try that one. Proverbs 31.10 uh, talks about the wife of noble character, and it's basically the understanding of like man and woman, like having noble valor. Valor is a word we don't use very often, but um, that idea of valor and of nobility, of trustworthy character, is something that's really, really important. So, okay, three. Those are the things we should kind of notice, be aware of, avoid potentially the 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 aspects of what I would call the internal attractive thing that we have to fight for. Um, I have four of them. So the first one is, which these are, some of these are taken out of Matt Chandler's book, Mingling of Souls, so if you've ever read it, it's going to sound familiar, but uh, the first one, which is going to be really interesting, and you're going you're to probably be like, what? First one is submission to authority. Another way to put it is humility and teachability. We don't like the word submission or authority, so we throw them both out sometimes, but authority is not bad. Abuse of authority is bad. So, for instance, when I talk about this, I'm not talking about just women, I'm talking about men and women in general. Like, are they submissive to the proper people in their life that can guide and help them? For instance, the questions you might ask was, um, the guy that you're pursuing, has he, is he, uh, is he, does he go to church? Is he under a church? Does he bounce around? Or is he under the authority of a local church? Meaning, does he have someone who's pouring into his life that he is being held accountable for his actions? Does he have mentors? Uh, girls, the same thing. Is she, is she in a church in a way that she is being poured into? She's being held accountable. Uh, like, I think about it even with your parents. Now, most of us at this point now, we're adults. You don't get to see these, like, petty interactions between your parents. But if, if they don't respect their parents at all, like, how do you expect them to respect anyone or to have submission to authority in any way? Like, that's a defining characteristic of the way that, the way that a, a man loves his mama is the way that he will love you. And that's important the second one is commitment. I think the best way to describe it is a deep rootedness. Or do they at least have the capacity for it? Does this person continually have FOMO all the time, never satisfied? Are they a person of their word? When they say they're going to be somewhere, do they show up and on time? That's one of the things that I, our culture is terrible at, is like just like committing to something. Like If you're like, hey, it's three weeks out, I'd love for you to be there, you're like, oof. I'll let you know the week of something better might come up. But to be honest, the person you want to date is the person who's like, yeah, I'll do it. I got nothing going on. Let's do it. Because they're not valuing the weight of maybe something better. They're, they're sticking to their word. They're, they're committing. That's, a, that's what marriage is, is a commitment. So you better see it practice now. 
Are they constantly changing jobs, friends, hobbies, rooming situations? Are they just constantly moving around to the point where they can't sit still? Probably the biggest question that I ask most people is, is this person capable of the commitment of companionship regardless of physical pleasure? Like if you were dating, you're like, hey, I just think we need to just like not, not make out for six months. Like if that guy's like, oof, see ya. There's your obvious warning sign. Not saying you should maybe do that, but are they content, like just with commitment of companionship? The reality of lack of commitment means instability, and that costs the joy of knowing and being known. That's like the intimacy. Commitment, at its root, is, is further deepening trust, which is giving you a better understanding of intimacy. The third one, which uh, is suffering or even resilience, which is really unique. You're probably like, this was not on my, my, my list of that perfect person. Who does this person become in stress, hardship, or brokenness? It's displayed maybe when everything isn't going well, but when things are hard. Uh, in fact, your marriage uh, might even be the suffering that you endure sometimes. Meaning like, like for Sarah and I, like our first year, two years, maybe three, you could ask her, of our marriage, we're like the suffering itself. Like we were like causing each other to suffer because we were just terrible partners very selfish and so like forget suffering like an external thing like you know a family member dies or you lose your job like we were the cause of suffering to each other and then we were committed to each other are you are you willing to go through that is the person you're interested in willing to go through that that's that's an attraction of like just being able to be resilient in the midst of hardship and difficulty and tension and then the last one which i added because i think it's incredibly important if i've learned anything in a few years of marriage is selflessness, having a servant heart. I've already seen the fruit of it, I think, in our marriage, and the more that we are selfless, the less that we point at each other, the better our marriage becomes, and the better partners we become to each other. And Jesus says there's no greater love. So we've learned that. Um, so questions you can ask is, does this person offer time to people that are in need? Do they give generously to their church and to others? Do they find creative ways to serve you? Do they find time in their busy schedule to meet needs of other people, call, even call family members, help someone with a flat tire? Do they serve people well? Because one thing to serve the person you're obsessed with and romanticized with is another thing to serve the person that gives you nothing. So like you can hold the door open for your date. Good job. But like when you're driving to your date and there's a guy on a flat tire, like are you going to get out and help them? Now don't feel guilty because I'm pretty sure we've all done that, driven by, but but like, is that something you would even think of? Is it something you'd entertain? It's, uh, it sounds bad, but guys are really easy at like seeing the hunt and the chase of a woman and putting all of their, like, what seems good into that. But what a woman's actually looking for is not always the way they're loving them. It's the way they're loving other people in the midst of it. For instance, if, you, if a girl dates a guy and he's like just cancels all of his friendships, you know what I mean? He just goes MIA. That's actually not a good thing. It's actually unhealthy. And the girl should be able to recognize that. He's loving her really well, but he just literally abandoned all of his other intimate relationships. You see what I'm saying? Intimacy is the foundation for all relationships. It's not just romanticism. So if that person just goes MIA, that's actually a red flag. It's not a, power, it's not a sign of power. Oh, he just really loves me. He wants to spend every minute with me. Yes, he, he wants to, but is he abandoning everything else for you? That's, a, that's, just, that's the path of, of codependency is what that is. So to kind of tie a bow on all of this, um, 
I think we, you know, those are probably four really interesting characteristics that you would probably, like I said, never have on your, your interest profile. If you were on Christian Mingle, they'd be like, what's the, what's the characteristics of someone you really like? You're not going to put those four up there. Uh, in fact, I don't know if anyone has those on Tinder, but maybe, it's, maybe, it's a, maybe you could try. Be like, yeah, I'm just submissive, content, commitment, suffering, selflessness. You would see if you get any swipes. But these are not the ideal. And why are they, why are they not the ideal? Because we are embedded in a culture that is dominating our understanding of attraction. I mean, this is not normal because what do we expect? Our last series for five weeks was, hey, we're not in the norm anymore, and everything we do is probably going to be a little weird or cause tension or be difficult because we are not running in the mainstream anymore. And so attraction for us will look different. So I kind of want to, I want to close and wrap it up with this. I feel like I haven't got to talk about Jesus much. So I want to um, bring it to Jesus. And I would say the most simple way to understand kind of all of this conversation and attraction is our ability to be attracted to the right things in someone internally is directly correlated to our ability to see Jesus' internal character traits. Meaning the things that we see in Jesus should be the foundation for the internal characteristics, the, the attraction that we see in others. I'm not throwing out physical attraction. In fact, like I said, the Song of Solomon, it is all about that. But it also includes, yeah, that he was a man of integrity, that he had value in what he put his mind to, that women knew that. So to kind of close and give you something to chew on, um, there's kind of two roles that I would see. Is One is, am I the person worth like being intimate with? And then how am I pursuing intimacy with others? There's kind of two roles there. I would say the two questions that I ask, and out of anyone, if I'm ever gauging intimacy, are these two questions. Number one, and this goes with everyone, is do I ask compelling questions? And number two, do I listen with intent to care? So regardless of if you're going after someone romantically or you're just trying to be a good friend or a good family member, do I ask compelling questions? Do I listen with intent to care? And the reason why I ask myself those is because Sarah and I have been on the receiving end of, you know, we, we moved out to Tucson and there was, there, that was our last job. There was like just not a lot of people to to meet us that were our age. And we had difficulty because we would have dinners with people who would literally, and we're pretty like outgoing, so we're probably a little bit intimidating, but we would have, we would have a three-hour dinner or whatever, hang out, and not one question was asked to us. Now, how do you think that we would, would conduct intimacy with both parties if we are never being able to be known? So for us, we made, it, we made a point. We actually, we found some great friends that eventually we, we saw that with, and you just click, like, it's too easy. It's just like when two, people, when two parties or two people are, are in, wanting to intimately know each other, intimately know each other, that you ask questions, you care about the person, you want to know them deeper, the weight of your relationship will be so much better. And I think as Christians, just in general, we need to be so much better at asking questions. I mean, like, I think about... You want to say, like, how do I practically love someone? The easiest and most baseline way is to ask questions. It's just to, like, care about them. You think, like, I need to do this grand thing or I need to go join this thing. I'm like, no, you really just need to, like, talk to people and ask questions because you care about them. Jesus had so many more questions than he did answers. So many more. So I think the root of intimacy, one practical thing you can think of this week is, like, in my relationships, if you're trying to gauge intimacy, am I asking compelling questions? to listen uh, and to care. So I want to close with uh, a communion so the band, you guys can come up. One thing that we do every Sunday here, and we will make this a habit as well when we are, Lord willing, in our new space in a few weeks, month, I don't even know, I don't want to say it. 
uh, is, is practice communion, or we call it the Lord's Supper. Um, and so if you haven't grabbed one of these, you totally can. They're in the back. Um, this is the juice and the bread that was a symbol of Jesus' last night on earth with us before he was killed. And uh, we take this as a reminder and a response, not only for ourselves and an evaluation of ourselves, but also a reminder of um, the, the love of Jesus that flows into the other things that we love and care about and do. Like I said, intimacy with others is rooted in intimacy with Jesus. That's, that's the, from creation with the Trinity to Adam and Eve to us now is intimacy and attraction, all these type of things. If we want them filtered correctly, we have to start with intimacy with Jesus. And so um, one of my favorite verses, and we've talked about it before, to remind you of this is in John 15. It just says, Jesus tells us to remain in him and I will remain in you just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine. So neither can you unless you remain in me. And then a few verses later, he says, my commandment is this, to love one another just as I have loved you. So in just a little, they're going to give you a little bit of time. Uh, you can take this on your own. If you follow Jesus and you um, want to take this, the first thing is just reminding yourself of the love that Jesus has given you freely. The second thing is to uh, repent and I would even say think about the ways that you can love people better in your life out of the love of Jesus that he's given you. So we'll give you a little bit of time and then uh, we'll sing one last song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.